Hello, and welcome to Beth Takoon and this Spiritual Seasons series. In this study, we are looking at each Torah portion in the light of the overall calendar and God's pattern for spiritual growth. This week, we are in Parsha Bamidbar, the first three and a half chapters of the Book of Numbers. Bamidbar means in the wilderness. As with the other books of the Torah, the first Torah portion is the Hebrew name of the book. So the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is also Bamidbar, or in the wilderness, which is a lot more exciting than Numbers, which is what we call it in English. In truth, the book does start with quite a few numbers, but the Hebrew name emphasizes the wilderness. And don't you just wonder what life was like with millions of people camping in a desert, living the simple life together? Did the tribes interact easily? Was there a place to trade in each camp? Was there, you maybe, um, were there caravans coming in and out and visiting and bringing different kinds of supplies that they needed? What did they burn for all their cooking fires? You know, where do they find wood for that many people, for example? Were there maybe groups of teenagers who liked to go out to explore the wadis and the caves? What was it like when three million people were all setting up their homes at the same time, you know, trying to get it done before the sun sets because that's where they need to sleep that night? How did they make allowances for grandmas and grandpas who maybe had trouble walking, getting around? Was there music trickling out of tents in the evening, maybe? Were there places of study? Were there animals walking around the camps? What were the sounds like in the morning or in the evening? I really want to see the documentary, but the book of Bamidbar is about as close as we're going to get to that documentary. So we can, um, I look forward to going through this next book of the Torah together with you. If I had to reduce this first portion of the book to a single sentence, it would be, everyone counts, but know your place. The main topics of the portion are the first census and the arrangement of the camp by groupings of tribes, which was also the order in which they marched in the wilderness. The Levites became, they become a a separate topic here in this portion because they're not counted with the rest of Israel in the census, though they do get counted eventually. They're just counted separately and differently. So whereas with the 12 tribes, the regular tribes, all the men 20 and over, men who can go out to war, they're the ones who are counted. Um, It's not, fighting men is not the emphasis for counting the Levites. They're counted according to the number of males one month old or older. It seems that the main reason that the Levites are counted at all is because God takes them in place of the firstborn males of the other tribes. So a count needed to be done for that reason. How many firstborn males are there in the other 12 tribes? Well, each one of the Levites, one month old and older, stands, is taken for one of those firstborns. 
So as these numbers for the Levites are being determined, God also assigns the three branches of the Levites certain duties for breaking down and transporting and putting back up the tabernacle. So we read about those special assignments during the census of the Levites when we're being given that information. The last topic of the portion specifically addresses one of those three branches of Levites, the Kohathites, who are given the task of transporting the most holy objects of the tabernacle. And that was actually Moses and Aaron's clan or, or group, the, the Kohathites. They are, uh, the Kohathites are given very specific instructions here for how they are to transport these objects, which must be treated with the respect of covering them as they are being moved. No one is supposed to see them as they are being moved. Not even the, the Kohathites, really. They're not supposed to just be staring at these objects. They're very holy objects. So let's think about this portion in terms of the calendar and the plan of salvation. So after the many laws given in the book of Vayikra, we're now seeing a major change to how Israel looks and moves in the world at the very beginning of this next book. So there's a very different feel already from the beginning of Numbers. In a way, all that buildup of climbing the Holiness Mountain in Vayikra, which we've been talking about, is leading to these physical changes that we're seeing here in the camp. So how is it that organizing the camp how is that a fulfillment of Vayikra of sorts? And what does this portion have to do with Shavuot? The rabbis consistently point out that Parsha Bamidbar is always the portion read before Shavuot. What we're seeing here is a visible, tangible example of what holiness looks like reflected in the body. This is an expression of holiness that we can actually see if we were to be on a mountaintop looking down on the camp of Israel. So the laws of Vayikra are, in a way, their speech, their commandments. And so you have to have that, that phase of being given the commandment. But then what, what follows that is you put it into action in this world, in this lowest world. Right? So that's what we're seeing here. I mean, it's one thing to absorb what you hear, and it's something else to actually start doing it, making changes in, in the world, right? And in what you look like and how you walk in the world. This is, so we can think of Bamidbar as a kind of response to those commandments of Vayikra. What is that response? What are we seeing? You know, what, what does it have to do with anything that they're being arranged in a certain way in the camp? So first what we're seeing as that response on the outside, is order from chaos. Remember that Vayikra, the Hebrew for Leviticus, means, and he called. When we respond to God's call to holiness, our life will become more ordered and less chaotic. And this includes a deep submitting to whatever authority that brings order to our larger groups. Right, So submitting to that authority that says, you go here, you go there, you go there, and then bringing that order, right? that's an expression of responding to the call to holiness. 
Secondly, we see in the, in the Parsha Bamidbar the recognition of degrees of holiness, degrees of holiness. There's a ranking of tribes reflected in their groupings and arrangement around the table. And so we'll talk more about this idea later, what, what I mean by a ranking of the tribes. So the second response to God's call to holiness is a deep recognition of what holiness actually looks like in our lives and how to separate out the holy and to protect it, right? That's, that's done in thought over here. Over here, it's done in deed. And so there has to be a translation of that recognition of holiness. What in your life is sacred? You know, what is it in your life that specially connects you to God and that you must be vigilant about keeping special, making it special, and keeping it beyond compromise? I, I might be able to compromise over here, do this a little fast. This over here, no. This is my connection to God. This is sacred. This is holy. I don't compromise that over here. So thirdly, Bamidbar is showing us that Everyone is created for a certain place in the body, a particular place for service in the body. So this third result is of responding to God's call to holiness is that we see where we are created to fit into the body. And we go to occupy that place. In the process, as each piece takes the place it was made for, a bigger being is created. A super being is created as you go here and you go here and you start to work and function there and do the work that only you can do there. This bigger being, this super being is created and it's far beyond, it's capable of much more than each of us can do individually. It's amazingly powerful and when these parts get together and specialize and work together with one mind and one heart. One way to see that camp in the wilderness is as a single unit, a single being capable of wielding truly massive power. But as long as they're disorganized and not knowing how to, you know, fit the whole body together, they're divided and weak, and they could be easily conquered like that. You know, if I'm an enemy looking down on that ordered camp and all that specialization, I'm going to think twice about attacking Israel. So let me repeat those points quickly. In responding to God's spoken commandments to be holy, we experience order from chaos. We experience, secondly, the recognition of what's holy in our specific situations. And three, we see and occupy our place, which creates a larger body. So this idea of holiness manifesting visibly is one that we can also apply to Shavuot, right? That's coming up in just about a week. This portion is not just a kind of culmination of the previous portions in Vayikra. It's also connected to Shavuot, right? It doesn't only connect backwards, it connects forward to what's coming next, which is Shavuot. So we can ask ourselves, how is Shavuot also a more physical manifestation of the word that God has been speaking to us over the course of these 50 days? You know, God was giving them some commandments 
as they were walking through to Mount Sinai about the Sabbath and collecting manna and such. And there was an understanding that the patriarchs even knew the Torah to some degree. So how is this different, what happens here at Mount Sinai? How is this a a more physical manifestation of the word? Well, it's not hard to see that the giving of a written Torah is a physical manifestation of the word. At Shavuot, that's what we're celebrating, at least what we traditionally celebrate is the giving of the Torah. The beginning of the giving of the Torah, God actually patiently spends many days over the course of the whole summer giving the Torah to Moses on the mountain. But it begins here at Shavuot, and so we're celebrating the giving of the Torah there. Receiving a written text, right, a book, it's a huge leap forward in making God's word concrete, seeing it manifested in this lowest realm here. And two, at Pentecost, it's another way to say Shavuot, but um, we see the apostles being empowered to speak out the word in many languages. And that's another kind of physical manifestation of the word, this, this breaking down into other languages, this gospel story. So there's a theme here of the beginning of the word becoming manifested tangibly, the beginning of that. We're seeing this tangible manifestation in the ordering of the Israelite camp. We see it as the written Torah begins to be given at Mount Sinai, and we see it in the good news being translated through the power of the Spirit into a large number of languages. All of these are examples of the word getting a kind of body. Though it's still early in this embodiment process, there's much further to go with making the word concrete. The whole salvation cycle is a process of the concretization of the initial light of truth we are given at the beginning of the cycle, back at Passover. It's becoming more concrete and more concrete and more concrete as the year goes on. And so we've got further to go, but Shavuot is a big step in that concretization process. So let me come to this connection. Let me come at this connection between Bamidbar and the Moed of Shavuot from a slightly different angle for a minute in terms of death and new life. New life is always preceded by the drawing of new lines, separating the holy from the common. Let me say that again. New life is always preceded by the drawing of new lines, separating the holy from the common. In both Bamidbar and Shavuot, we see this idea that new lines of separation come before a higher level of living. So holiness implies separation. This is special, holy, and this over here is common. Lines are drawn, lines of separation. We're seeing these lines being drawn all throughout the book of Leviticus. And these lines manifest physically in Bamidbar, in the camp of Israel, where lines are drawn to say, this part of the camp over here is more holy than this part over here. And this side is responsible for holier work than this side. So there's some pain involved there. Separation is death, and there's some pain with death. You can imagine that when God gave the instructions for how the tribes were to arrange themselves, 
that some people would have been a bit sad. Imagine that you're, say, 10 years old, and you are a member of the tribe of Reuben, let's say. Your best friend is from the tribe of Dan. So up until now, your parents could find a way to camp relatively near to each other, but not anymore. Now Reuben is on the south of the tabernacle, and Dan is at the north. And so there's some sadness there, but the purpose is for a greater life. The ordering of the camp, the fusing of the tribes together into a greater body, where each tribe takes up the place it was made for. In fact, Reuben led the south, Dan led the north. So the death is for the purpose of life. This is what the Torah is, right? Submitting to the Torah is a kind of death for the purpose of a greater life. The Torah is drawing lines in every area of our lives. This is holy, that is common. Or this is clean and this is unclean. Every time we submit uh, on a deeper level to the Torah, we are led to a kind of separation, a kind of death for the purpose of a higher life. A higher level of living always requires first the death of drawing more lines between what is holy and what is common. Right, so you might sense that in your life where you just start to get more sensitive. You know, I've been doing this. It's been fine. It seems fine. It's way better than what the world does. It starts to start to feel unsettled. And you start to say, you know what? There's a taint there. There's a line that I'm going to draw. And that comes as you are being picked up to a higher level of living. So this idea of the death before the new life is central to the entire book of Bamidbar because the name itself is very much connected to death, the name Bamidbar. So let's talk about this word Bamidbar now in this fourth book of the Torah. As I mentioned earlier, Bamidbar means in the wilderness. Midbar is the wilderness, no man's land. What kind of land is land that nobody wants? to settle down on and claim. Well, it's mostly it's dry land. So most of the area Israel journeyed through during the 40 years in the Midbar is classified today by scientists as a desert, true desert. Though some of it is steppe, which gets a little bit more rain than desert, especially north as you get into Israel proper, it's more steppe land. So in Jewish thinking, the wilderness is the dying place. Rabbi Akiva Tatz calls the wilderness the place of extreme death forces. It doesn't only lack water, which is so necessary for life. Wilderness areas around Egypt and Israel are often starkly beautiful, and I had the privilege of being able to live in the Midbar in Arad in Israel, um, surrounded by Midbar anyway, for a couple of years, and it was amazing, and it was beautiful. But um, the, these are really sun-blasted places. And there's a lot of venomous creatures that live in the Midbar, in the wilderness. Uh, creatures that can give you a pretty nasty sting. And there's also a great um, number of predators. And I got to see a, a few of those as in my hikes through the wilderness when I lived there. 
and especially in ancient times, there were, and still are, many of these creatures, lions, leopards, jackals, hyenas, even wolves that kind of slink through these canyons looking for whatever they can find to eat. And, um, you know, like I said, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place, and especially after it's rained a little bit and it starts to green up. I mean, there's a lot of, of shepherds and shepherdesses still leading their flocks through these areas. There is some food to be found, but there are also places you don't want to linger too long with that sun beating down on you and the animals coming out eventually, hungry sometimes. Um, it's not a place to linger. And um, it's described as a place where Israel is going to suffer for 40 years. God clearly states that, you know, his reason for keeping Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and it's to kill off a generation that is not suited for entering the promised land. So let me read that um, passage from Numbers 14, where God mentions his purpose for the wilderness journey, and listen to how many times he mentions death and dying when he's giving this reasoning. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Yephune and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Yephunneh remained alive. And so that's Numbers 14, 26 to 38. The connection is clear. The wilderness is a place to die. So is this death a mere punishment? Is it just, just punishment? I really don't think that with God, there's such a thing as mere punishment for punishment's sake. Punishment is always meant to achieve a greater end with God. The bending of the knee in humility, the turning back to him, and especially the cleansing 
required of a holy people. So on the one hand, we could look at the book of Bamidbar as a delay in entering the land so that people can die. Or we can look at it more positively as the necessary inward cleansing of the people that is required for them to be strong and united enough to step up and do the cleansing of the land of Israel together, right? They've got to take those swords up. They've got to be strong, united, cleansed before they do this outward cleansing. Outward meaning the land, which is like the body of Israel, the physical body. Before they do that outward cleansing of the land, they have to do an inward cleansing among themselves. And so in that inward cleansing, they remove Egypt. They remove the reproach of Egypt. And we see that line said when they cross the Jordan River and are circumcised. So this idea of dying in the Midbar is also very connected to the idea of God's speech. Speech and dying, speech and dying. So this is because the root of Midbar is Dabar, to speak. It's like the name of this book could be understood as in God's speech, Right? They spend 40 years in God's speech, what he's saying to them. So what's the connection between God's speech and dying? I think the connection is that truth divides. Truth separates. Truth is light. When the truth is spoken out, those who are inwardly aligned with the light will be drawn to it. And those who are inwardly aligned to darkness will be repelled by it. The two groups will be split from each other. The word is a sword. Truth is a sword. When Yeshua spoke, everything he said was truth. And over and over again, his words divided the crowds who listened to him. And we're specifically told that in the Gospels, how the the people were divided at his words. Now, there's another side to the word and another side to truth. So after truth separates the light and the dark, truth continues to do a work in those who are part of the light. And this is a work of joining, not separation. So those who have been drawn to the light are drawn closer and closer to each other as they work together to digest the truth and live it out. So this is how the word first divides and then brings together. Again, first, the word brings death by separating out those destined for the light and those destined for the darkness. Then those in the light are drawn together into an interdependent body as they meditate on and act upon truth. So this challenge of understanding truth you know, by working together in that, the the body is brought together in that challenge. We can actually see these two steps in the names of the two final books of the Torah, Bamidbar and Devarim, Numbers and Deuteronomy. If Bamidbar is about the word that brings death, then Devarim should be about the word that brings life, right? Well, you can hear in the word Devarim, that it is from the same root as Bamidbar. These last two books of the Torah are both from the root Dabar, to speak. Really, these two last books are two sides of one coin. In Bamidbar, we have 
the speech that brings death, the wilderness, right? It's all associated with the wilderness and dying. And in Devarim, Deuteronomy, we have the speech within the body, within the members that brings life, right? Devarim is spoken out by Moses. And so this is the body meditating upon the word, helping each other to understand the word so that it can be walked out. Well, since I brought up a kind of progression in these last two books of the Torah, and since we're starting a new book now, I want to give just the thousand-foot view of the progression of all five books of the Torah according to the salvation pattern. We, we actually did this before in another teaching. We'll just do it quickly here. It's something we need to review and keep meditating upon from time to time as we keep progressing through the Torah. We need to kind of zoom out sometimes, to see where we're at in the bigger picture. So I'm going to do it quickly, and if it's a little too condensed, too much information, just hang in there. We'll, we'll move on pretty soon. As we go through the five books, listen for the overarching progression here of one, beginning in oneness, two, moving to separation, and then three, to reunification and four, to deep unity, right? Oneness, separation, reunification, and deep unity. And, you know, it may be helpful to um, take a look at the outline that's linked below the, um, link below the video um, that will kind of spell this out, and you can see it visually. So, Bereshit which is Genesis, has the word head at its root, rosh. And this is a kind of oneness that we see at the spiritual root, at the beginning. The head is a place of comparative unity within the body. The brain looks like an undifferentiated, undifferentiated oneness. I mean, imagine if you were back in the days before science and MRIs and all of that, and you looked inside of a brain, um, it all just looks like gray matter, right? It's just kind of undifferentiated looking. So the beginning is marked by this undifferentiated oneness, but that doesn't last very long at all. Right away, we start to see separation. And um, in the book of Bereshit, sin comes in very quickly in the first book, and this causes separation. But the Bible doesn't dwell on this story of the fall very much, kind of just skims through all that early stuff. Instead, the narrative speeds forward until we get to Abraham, when it slows down vastly. The focus of the first book becomes the seed of salvation for humanity. The seed is made of three parts, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that seed of salvation is what we're reading about for most of Genesis. Though the seed of salvation is given, the process of separation continues into the second book, Shemot, which is wholly devoted to separation. This is like day two of creation. Shemot means names. The word is plural. Right? We've got more than one now and indicates a separation into individual identity and ego distinct essences described by names. It is a book about birth, the birth of a nation, which is the separation of a baby from its mother, 
and a new baby is soon given a new name that describes its unique and separate identity. In Shemot, Israel separates from the world and begins taking on her identity as a holy people, a people separated from the others to be God's special treasure. Though they have some work to do before God can really join together with his people. Vayikra, the third book, is about reunification, the beginning of a process of deep joining. The word Vayikra begins with a vav, which is the letter of connection, and here means and, it usually does, when it's affixed to the beginning of a, of a verb. The translation of Vayikra is, and he called. This calling implies that God is reaching out to connect to his people. He's calling them, which means he's sending his word to them, through which they can reconnect to him. So it's a book that has a special emphasis on the priesthood, which is a holy kind of human being that God uses in a special way to connect to his people. All about connection going on there in Vayikra, including the priesthood, which is a connection for us. So Bamidbar is the fourth book, the book we're coming to now, and it's about cleansing, the cleansing that the word brings. It's a book about the death of a generation, which we just said. And that's the first stage of cleansing the vessel. This cleansing process begins a phase that is deep unity, this phase of deep unity with God, where the people learn to walk daily with God, even as they are burying people along the way, right? They, they look to that pillar of cloud every morning. Is it still there? Is it starting to move? Do we have to move now? They're learning how to walk with God, and this is a kind of deep unity. But that's also associated with cleansing, internal cleansing. Devarim is the final stage of deep unity in which the bride has now become the vessel through which the word is spoken. Devarim is named not for God's words, but for the words of a man, Moses. The book is Moses's rephrasing of the Torah, his repetition of the Torah in his own words. So it's regarded as the beginning of the oral Torah. This is God's bride stepping up to be the bride who has a mind of her own and a free will of her own and makes the choice to be a willing vessel for the Spirit of God to flow through. So there's a great unity in yielding to God in this way, the yielding of a bride with her groom. And so that's the final book of the Torah. Well, the final topic I have for today related to the portion will help us to get into a few of the details in the text. We can call this topic unity through knowing and accepting one's place. We'll address here why it is that I'm saying the camp is arranged by levels of holiness and honor. It kind of strikes us as, as being strange in our modern sensibilities. But before the text divides the tribes into groups, we have the census. That's what begins the book of, of Bumimbar. What is the census doing here? So in a way, the census works to affirm every person as being equally a part of the body. We're about to divide you all into groups, right? But before that, we're going to affirm 
that each of you is equally a part of the body. So the rabbis see the message in the census that everyone counts. Now it's true that only the men were actually counted, but we can understand that it's assumed that these men have wives who are their other half. The men are counted, sorry, the women are counted then through the men, through their husbands. So the census tells the people, first know that you belong in this body. Let me say to each of you listening today that if you are a believer, then you are grafted into Israel, or you are a Jewish person with, who doesn't need to be grafted in, but most of us are grafted into Israel. And if you are looking for your place in this world, where do I fit into this world? Start with knowing that you are part of Israel. You are part of Israel. Where is your place? Your place is firstly with Israel. It's a simple truth, but it's one that we should speak to ourselves frequently. And I think this is alluded to in the Brit Hadashah reading from Matthew 24, where we see greater Israel being gathered together from the four corners of the earth. Concerning the census, Grant likes to point out here that the Hebrew idiom for counting people is lifting the head. Lift the heads of the people of Israel means that they should be counted. We get the picture of one of the 12 princes chosen by God, right? God names these 12 himself to do the counting. We get this picture of one of them reaching out to lift each person's head in their tribe as they are counted. And he looks into each one's eyes and he sees them and he says, yes, you are one of us. You belong here. The idiom makes it a humanizing rather than a dehumanizing moment. You're just a number, right? You're not a human. You're a number. Well, no. Here your head is lifted. Look into your eyes and say, you belong. You belong here. Already, though, even in the census, the tribes and their counts are listed according to a certain order that reflects different levels. And this order with the census has similarities to the order of the camp, how the Tribes are grouped, I and mean, there's something essential to this order. So it's one thing to know you belong in a body, and it's another to know exactly where you fit into that body. Some parts are made for greater honor than others. And so, like I said, something in our modern sensibilities kind of objects to this idea. And I think it's even within our American ethos, this idea of equality. And... We just have to accept that it's simply God's way that we are, I guess we could say, created with different potentials. And if we can't accept that, if we, can, if we can't accept that God has created us to fit a certain level of nobility, a certain kind of service in this world, then we're always trying to be someone we can't be. Paul addresses this idea when he says in Romans well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We know that the tribes are very different from each other, each with their own unique identity reflected by their banners. And, you know, the, these differences include which ones are holier and which ones are a little bit less holy. So here is the story 
that I see in how the tribes are first listed in the census and then grouped and listed for establishing the camp and marching. Each tribe begins with a certain level of honor, we'll say honor, based on which of the four mothers the tribe comes from. It comes down to the mothers to begin with anyway. Leah is first and imparts the most honor. Rachel is second and the handmaids below. Leah's handmaid Zilpah is higher than Rachel's handmaid Bilhah. For all four mothers, a firstborn son is given more honor than the other sons born to that mother. Still, though, regardless of where they begin their journey on that scale of honor, their life decisions do affect their standing at any given moment. So based on all these factors, when God provides the order, each tribe falls into a certain place in the camp that is only that tribe's place. It's a calculation based on who your mother was, whether you were born to that mother first or second or third or lower, and what you have done so far with the potential that you've been given. God does the calculation, and each tribe is assigned a place. So as we quickly go around the four sides of the camp, um, again, it might be helpful to look at the outline that is linked below the video. So Leah's third son, Levi, Levi is given the highest place immediately surrounding the tabernacle. You've got that tabernacle in the middle and completely surrounding is the tribe of Levi. And so that's the highest level of holiness and honor. The patriarch Levi had, Levi had three sons and within the camp of Levi, there is a ranking that is reflected by which side of the tabernacle certain Levite clans are assigned to and the work that each clan is given in transporting certain parts of the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle, from the holiest parts to the least holy. So um, if you're saying, well, that's only three sons of Levi for three sides, well, Moses and Aaron and their families are given the fourth side, which is the most holy side. So beyond the Levites, Leah's sons who act most honorably are given the choicest places, which is on the east side. So these on the east are Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Judah being the oldest of these three and the leader of the east side tribes. The Levite group on this side nearer the tabernacle is also the holiest group, the priests, as I said, Aaron and Moses camp on the east side, right? And so they camp with, the, with Judah and Issachar and Zebulun on the east side. So each time we go through these, I'm going to say what the tribes are and then what the Levite group is that is closer in around the tabernacle. Leah's other sons who had some fumbles, they're still ranked higher than Rachel's tribes. Reuben and Simeon, you know, they had their stumbles, and they're both from Leah. They're given the next places on the south side, where Reuben, the firstborn, is the leader. And so the Levite group, there you've got, got your eastern ones, you've got your three that are um, 
that are next in line, I guess you could say. And then the Levite group that's also on that side are the Kohathites. And they carry the holiest objects of the tabernacle. So they carry the holiest objects, but they're a little lower than Moses and Aaron and the priesthood, which is on the east side. So one more spot is open, though on the south side, um, Leah had six, and one of them was Levi. So that um, sixth spot has to be filled by one of the other tribes, and it's filled by Gad. So who is Gad? He's the firstborn of Leah's handmaid, Zilpah. And then we move to the west side. They are the tribes descended from Rachel. They belong to a middle tier of honor, despite Joseph's great accomplishments. They're rewarded by having a whole extra place within Israel. But in their ranking of how they're laid out in the camp, they're in the kind of a middle tier. So the tribes on that west side are Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And it's led by Ephraim. The north side is mentioned last and is led by the remaining firstborn son, Dan, who is Bilhah's first son. He is joined on that side by the two second-born sons of the handmaids, Asher and Naphtali, who are the lowest two of all the tribes. The Levite group that joins them on that side, on the north side, are the ones who tote the bars and the posts and the sockets of the tabernacle. And these are the, the least, the, the most grounded pieces, we can say, of the tabernacle. Well, if you didn't follow all that, my point is to say that God calculates a person's standing and he assigns you a place of service accordingly. Much of that standing is given at birth. Right? He chose you. He formed you in the womb be in a certain place, and do a certain duty. Um, but our life decisions can add to or take away a bit from that starting point. God is the one who created these tribes, and he is the one who decides where they fit into the body at any given point in time. And he does the same with us. So what I want to say here is that we need to recognize that we are made to fit into a certain place in the body of believers. And if we don't recognize that, if we kick and kick against that, we will be miserable. We will be miserable because we'll be trying to camp where we don't belong. And the whole body will suffer. The whole body will be less organized, less effective, less fruitful, less at peace, and in the end, less united. If you want to sow discord, tell everybody that they all have the exact same potential as everyone else. It's actually cruel, and it's one of the problems with our modern school systems, which makes so many students feel like utter failures, when sometimes certain students, they just didn't have the potential to get the A to begin with. But you're told, you, you can do this, you can you know, just work hard. It's not right. When we preach that everyone in a class is built with the same potential, we set up at least half of them for a deep disappointment. And it's at an age, you know, these are formative ages when they can't really process what's happening. They just absorb labels that others smother them with. 
and labels that they put on their own selves, burdening themselves for the rest of their lives. It's okay if the label is accurate, but how often does the world see us accurately? If the label is slow and stupid or lazy or rebellious, a follower rather than a leader, weak, whatever, there's a real lasting damage there. The idea that we are all born with the same potential is not what we see either in the word or in the world. So don't get me wrong, everyone is to be respected equally as a child of God, but it's simply not true that everyone is born with the same potential to fill any role in society. If you work hard enough and have a totally level playing field, this is a lie that causes great dissatisfaction in life, like depression, right? And great bitterness. And in the end, it causes discord and disunity. You have to, if once we know where we fit in, we can go and we can be in that place rather than everyone trying to fight to be in the place of honor. Go. It is honorable to go to the place that you know that you are prepared to be in. So many of us, even if we are older, still have a great deal of healing to do from the wounds we received as children, all the disappointments, all the rankings, right? Some teachers actually would write the highest grade on the test on the board and go down from there, right? Listing the names. And it's comparing. It's comparing these complex worlds, these young people who don't even quite know who they are yet. So parents sometimes do this to kids too, their, their own kids, if they have more than one. They compare this child to that one. And then you go to the park, and this mother is going on and on about her child's accomplishments. And this one who's listening, this, this mother or father who's listening, feels bad maybe that, that his child is not accomplishing like that child. These ideas, these comparisons trickle down to the children who often directly overhear these conversations and they cause great pain and it's usually built on a lie. We spend the rest of our lives trying to come to terms with those scars that we receive as we're being compared to other people. What I want to say today is that you may have not been created to be that straight A student you so admired and wished you could be. You may not have been created to be that fantastic athlete. You may not have been created to be the person who's able to be a leader at work and earn that salary. Maybe you never had that potential because that's simply not the role you're made for. That's no excuse to not give it a shot to push yourself to maximize the potential you have been given with all your strength. You don't even know what you're capable of until you try and try really hard. But if you have tried and found yourself unable in this area or that one, stop beating yourself up. Just accept that that's not you. Know your place and be okay with that. I'm not talking about failing in terms of sin here right? We, we don't accept that. <laughs> but I'm talking about failing in terms of certain skills, certain roles, 
stop beating yourself up because your little sister was a whiz kid on the piano while you couldn't seem to tie your shoes correctly, right? Accept who you are made to be and be at peace and fully indwell that space, that land that you are given to inhabit, right? Quit being distracted. Go do, you know, work with what you're given, right? That's, that's going to be how you're really going to have peace. So the Haftarah powerfully speaks this message to us about knowing and accepting one's place and being fruitful where you're meant to be planted. It's the story in 1 Samuel of Jonathan and David. So by rights, Jonathan should have been the next king, but Jonathan was a mensch, and he recognized that someone else was created to fill that role. He saw that God was elevating David, not him, and he just accepted that. Brave and honorable and loving Jonathan is one of the greatest characters in the whole Bible. And we can say this because Jonathan had the faith to accept his position. Even when his father was yelling at him for staying friends with David, King Saul even says, don't you know that as long as David lives, you will not be secured on the throne? Something like that. But none of that matters to Jonathan. He saw what he was created for, to be a friend and support to the future king, not to be the king himself. And that brought great honor too. Being a friend to the king, well, that's a place of great honor too. And so he put his energies into the role that he was given. We remember him down to today as being worthy of much honor. So I was not born as a genetic descendant of Abraham, at least not that I know of. So I'm starting out in a different, in a lower place of honor than those who are descended from Abraham. Fine. I don't need to have that kind of honor if I'm not made for that place. My life won't run as it should if I'm endlessly pining away for the honor that I'm not created for. Dan and Asher and Naphtali had to accept their places on the north side. They're mentioned last. And once you do accept your spot, you can really bloom there. And the whole body benefits and is united and empowered. Well, let's move on now to a couple of direct applications to Yeshua in this discussion, or at least one application here, really. We started out today talking about how this portion represents a kind of manifesting of holiness in the physical realm, right? Holiness starts to be able to be seen. And it's it's one thing to receive the word, the commandment we said to be holy, and it's something else to arrange your camp according to that commandment. We talked about Shavuot being a step where the word is manifested in writing on parchment. The word is made concrete in this way, but God has more in store where that came from. It's going to get more concrete than that even. So at the next great feast season in the fall, we see the word manifested even more tangibly when the word is made into flesh, right? The word is born in human form, tabernacling among us, placed in a manger. He grows up and becomes a teacher, and he opens his mouth to teach. And what comes forth is the living word in an even more concrete form. 
Yeshua is the word that we can have a real relationship with. And this is better than a written Torah. The word made flesh is greater than the word, as great as the Torah is, as necessary for our understanding. We really need both. We really need first the one and then the other. But Yeshua had that whole Torah within him, and whatever he spoke was that Torah. And we could have a relationship with him. He lived among us and spoke to us the very words of God that the people needed to hear in each moment. It's really amazing to think about Yeshua as the word of God to the people in that moment, in this moment, in that moment. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I will include a link to an outline below, as I've been saying. May God make us into a people who not only hear the call to holiness, but who also manifest that holiness outwardly, right? So that people can see. May we be a people who embrace the death that is necessary to enter into a higher level of life. Embrace that death, those lines, those new lines that separate the holy from the common in our lives. And as we rise up to that higher level, may we wholeheartedly accept our role in the body, in that place, in that time, so that we can fully rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.